Well, Mike, it's the time of Nurgle. It has finally come. Yes, this uh, podcast taking place inside the uh, Zinch survival bunker. So, uh, things are a little weird in here, but um, yep. I'm sure we'll get through this time of change um, yep. in one piece. Though perhaps not all the same pieces we started in. Well, I hope everybody is able to make it through as uh, healthy as possible, and that you know, uh, obviously wishing the best to everybody and their loved ones, and that you know there isn't a. Uh, we'll just leave it there. Just that things yeah. don't get any worse than they already are. Let's just keep our fingers crossed. But in the meantime, most of us are probably just locked up in our houses, apartments, whatever, and we're looking for stuff to do. And you know what? That's a good opportunity for us to sit down, catch up, talk about some space marines, um, some other works. stuff. Take, let's just get our minds off of a whole virus thing for a little bit and have some fun here. So, Yep. All right. So with that, um, Mike, we could probably just kind of rewind a little bit and talk about um, how leading up to just a few weeks ago, uh, you and I were doing some playtesting. We were, in fact, doing some playtesting. Um, we did a epic rematch between the Clown Car Army and the Magnus Armand and his uh, book, library book boys. Yep. Yeah, we attempted to get back into the library a second time and were denied yet again. Yep, I'm afraid that your privilege has been forever revoked. Trazian stole your library card. So the changes I made to the list basically were focused on putting more Zangors in there and trying to put some bodies on the table that could handle your massive onslaught of these annoying clowns getting out of their cars and basically just murdering everything in my army. Um, the the short of it is is that sometimes you have to recognize that there are some problems you're you're only going to be able to solve so well like you're not going to solve the problem of beating that army trying to do what they do or even maybe limiting what you can do your army's to basically even with the new rules is incredibly aggressive and incredibly efficient at just being able to take over the board go where you want um you know, and then just basically pick and choose what dies. Yes. It's an army that's effectively just full of assassins, and I love it. But And so, that, I mean, our game pretty much went very similar to the last game. Um, it was over pretty quick. Uh, yeah. Just simply um, still <laughs> some things to learn on deployment and um, how they went. But if you guys are really interested in seeing the match, uh, I believe we did get a good recording of it actually posted. It should be up on Twitch under the uh, Tiska Twitch account. Um, that is where we have been streaming to. And uh, hopefully you get a chance to watch it and kind of see how that match went. Yes, so there was one particular moment that um, I felt was very important um, towards the oh, that's flow of right. the game. That's Some very fi right. Fireworks going off. It's a bit of a something to plan around. So um, there's... So we love these contempt to dreadnoughts, right? They're, they're fantastic, but chaos can only take them under the hellforged context. And unfortunately, when you take them as hellforged dreadnoughts, uh, they have a possibility of blowing up. And unfortunately, uh, the dreadnought decided to blow up in my shooting phase. And 
it was turn one, and I, I want to say, I, I, Mike. Yeah, I killed it with all my haywire. Yeah, no, yeah, sorry, your shooting phase. <clears throat> yeah. But, but essentially, it blew up. I hadn't moved my castle around yet, so he was still standing in the middle of everybody that was really important. The thing about the Hellforge stuff is they blow up like any other vehicle, but when there's psychers nearby, they do much more to the psychers. And it's just like it's D6 mortal wounds rather than D3 mortal wounds that get dealt to them, which is really painful. Unfortunately, what happened was I didn't have the ability to re-roll out of that either because earlier in the sh- the, your shooting phase, something I think got fired and I tried to say, uh, use a command point or something for a re-roll. So I had no way to re-roll out of it. And so I was screwed. Uh, so essentially... Everything in my army pretty much took D6 mortal wounds just right off the bat. And it was really bad. Yeah, that was really bad. So the takeaway from that is if you are taking a hell-forged whatever, Contempt to Dreadnought, something else, perhaps putting it inside your castle with all of your guys might not necessarily be the best of ideas. And there's folks that are probably saying, well, duh, I do that all the time. Hey, even the best of us know that we may, or we forget rules or we forget, oh, yeah, it has that ability or that kind of thing. Um, and you just got to remember to account for that. Yep. But um, otherwise, I, I, I got to try out the uh, more clown cars. If I put them together and they were there beautiful but i do think that the um one thing that the game definitely picked up on was that because of the changes to the itc championship mission secondaries the maneuverable armies are able to pick up a whole bunch of points very very quickly it's almost Um, like that's the better way to design your army right now with the rules and i have a feeling more people are going to catch on to this that mm-hmm. if you if you basically design your army as non-interactive meaning uh, like yours not not that yours is you interact with me i mean more from a scoring standpoint yeah you don't care who you're facing you're scoring almost the same way every time right yeah i mean the literally the only way to prevent me from scoring three points on my both of my passive ones by turn one oh sorry by turn two is to literally lock me out of huge sections of the board which is incredibly difficult because everything i have effectively flies yeah and i think of only like a couple armies that can potentially pull that off like nurgle demons um you know death guard orcs uh, yeah tyranids maybe where they just They have so many bodies, you're forced into a situation where, okay, I can't, I just can't go do that. Uh, but even then, the, the, those armies, they might be able to do that. And against you they, they, or your concept, they're really good. But then what about all the other concepts, right? Yeah, which is sort of the thing that the that armies in particular is designed to do is the things that are good against a harlequin army aren't necessarily good against anything else and so i think that's one of the strengths of the army at the moment so there were a couple things that i think we left uh our match still kind of in the air on and even to this day i'm still in the air on because obviously with the 
kind of the shutdown of everything, we haven't been able to do much more playtesting. So the mutilative vortex beast is probably one of the big things. Um, there, from even from the game that we were in and the shooting that you were putting into it, there's potential there. I think uh, whether it's a high potential or not is yet to be seen. Um, and I think I'm waffling a little bit. I, I might be overreacting with the contemptor and that it was a very rare situation for the thing to blow up with it being in the middle of everything, doing lots of wounds. However, I, you know, I keep coming back to looking at the dual fist Hellbrute versus the dual chain fist contemptor. And I just feel like the value you get out of 90 points from the Hellbrute just outweighs the extra points you have to pay for the invuln save, the extra wounds, the, um, you know, the hitting on twos, uh, you know, you know, all that stuff. Just, I don't, I just don't see the, the advantage of paying all those points when you're, you're so point strapped to begin with. Yeah. Which I think with those types of units in particular, having a clear, like what is the unit's like a goal and role in the army uh, really decides whether or not you should include one or the other or either. Right. And I, uh, and I think in, in mind, the way he, the way he's intended to be used is a backup melee defense. Like if you assault me, he's there to counter assault. Mm-hmm. But if you're not going to do that, then I fling him at you and yeah. to, to go and say, okay, there's this nasty vehicle or maybe you've got some artillery over there. His job is to just go over there and harass the hell out of them and make them have to deal with him while I go do other stuff with Magnus um, and basically be an additional threat at that point. And yeah. playing with my Raven Guard army, I kind of learned that that was a very um, efficient use of a single, a fit, like a, I was using a Dreadnought in that army for the same thing. And I just love that in duplicity, with uh, the duplicity cult, I can do the exact same thing. Yeah, but at the time, the Raven Guard Dreadnought also had a a lot more support than what you can throw on the Contemptor. Yeah, so we're I, we're abusing a stratagem on there for sure. Um, you know, the have damage or the minus one damage is now, which I still think is really good. Feel no pain, five up in bone, four up in in melee, but. Um, that dreadnought was all the one I was using was also a lot more expensive than just the chain fist hellforge dreadnought as well. So um, here, no, there uh, getting back to the mutilith, he sat on the sidelines for a long time because he mainly just didn't have a delivery mechanism. And I think when we were discussing this towards the end of our match, that was kind of the same conclusion we arrived at is that that main problem he had has kind of been resolved. Yeah, the inclusion of duplicity um, really does resolve the problem that the Mutalith ran into. You no longer have to spend a turn trudging across the table, or I, I guess you could warp time him, but is that a good Necessary? investment? Yeah, and you're probably spending that warp time on your Demon Princes or Magnus. So I, I don't know that it's uh, I don't know that it's necessary at that point. Um, but I think Harlequins, Mike, the way you play them right now, even, even just the mechanized armies, I, I think they're an oddball right now that I don't, I, what's your take? I, I don't see a lot of people actually running mechanized armies. I mean, no, that's the, th- nobody's run mechanized, um, in any real competitive sense, pretty much since the edition changed because of the risks 
uh, of getting boxed in by another fast army. Um, I, I made the argument for rhinos um, a few years ago for Marines and uh, pretty much everyone that I talked to said it was a terrible idea. Cause well, what if you get surrounded by like a squad of shining spears and now you're completely locked in. But the thing is, I don't see people playing the armies that are capable of doing that, at least not regularly. Not not taking advantage of, oh, yeah, I can surround the vehicle to kill what's in it, right? Yeah. Do you also think that the people that are playing the mechanized armies, if they were to think through it, are maybe not playing the mechanized armies appropriately either? I, I think so. Uh, mostly so the part of the reason i love mechanized armies in the current edition is one it protects you it's a buffer against alpha strikes so if your opponent is playing some sort of super killy my first turn i kill every infantry character on the game put up in a rhino um so even if the rhino dies well that's 10 wounds against the high toughness target that didn't go into the rest of your army at a fairly affordable price point at this point. And unless you're playing regular Marines, so if you're playing chaos in particular or any of the other armies, you have a decent number of guns or variety of guns on your transports. So even after you've disembarked for your free bit of extra movement and then moved across the table and done whatever you want to do, the vehicles can still move around. They can hold objectives. They, if they're chaos, they can have a melta, which is yeah. a sneaky addition. Uh, you can take two storm bolt, uh, combi bolters and get a bunch of extra shots. Um, I, I think Pete, the rhinos and the same sort of class of cheap transports to my eyes fit in the same sort of category as, people taking things like cultists as screens. They can do almost the exact same thing, but they also allow you to literally shield your units against fire. Now, there are some risks because you can get surrounded and get locked inside, but in all of my time playing the current edition, I've seen that actually done successfully a handful of times. Do you draw the line against things like Roland Raiders that they're just too expensive for the cost for the cost efficiency? Yes. Of what you're so to do? I would say Land Raiders. So the the real problem with Land Raiders is nothing to do with the cost to what they do. It's the cost to transport capacity. So a Land Raider costs over two hundred points for a toughness eight two up save thing with a bunch of guns but it only transports about the same as a rhino. Yeah. So what do you carry terminators, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what are you paying for at that point? Yeah. The guns. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess you're <laughs> paying for the guns, but the extra why not wounds, take right? like, Yeah. It's, the problem is it's, it's you're paying too much for a bunch of stuff that doesn't really mesh well. Right. Whereas let's take orcs. Yeah. Okay. So an orc truck costs like 50 points. It can transport 12 boys. Fantastic. But 12 boys isn't necessarily what you want to take all the time. What if you want 20 boys? Well, then you have a battle wagon. So for like 150 points, you get a battle wagon, which is does almost all the same things as a Land Raider, but at almost 100 points cheaper. And, and so the reality is, is then maybe the, the that's an interesting point you're making because is that, is that 
suggesting that the solution for the land raider is um, maybe not points oriented, but maybe just upping the capacity it can yeah. carry. Increase the capacity or like it needs to be tweaked. It needs to be cheaper, but not necessarily. It's right. a, this is a delicate balance because you don't want to make it too cheap because the guns it has are still very good, but you, you need to give it a clear role. And currently it doesn't really have one. And I think you're, I think you're spot on here thinking this through because the, the guns you're paying for separately, right? The, the four LAS cannons mm-hmm. add up, you're, you pay for those. So we can take them out of the equation right? It's not a, it's obviously not an option uh, for whatever reason. We just chaos space Marines forgot how to change out weapons on their land Raider. Uh, but <laughs> here nor there, uh, let's just assume we know we have to put on eight LAS cannons on the thing, which is ridiculous to begin with. Um, if I know that my transport capacity is this much bigger now, um, I can look at the base cost of the hull of the thing and just say, okay, well, if, if I have say 20 wounds on a land Raider, so it's twice as many wounds as a Rhino, it has twice the, the capacity as the Rhino and has a higher toughness than the Rhino. Um, I could see the thing coming in more than double the cost, but at the cost of the Rhino at the moment, that's, you, we're talking a hundred, 120, 130 points or so. So, and, and if I'm remembering right, that's, getting awfully close to where they're priced right now. So it almost mm-hmm. sounds like we we really are exactly as you were explaining it. Maybe the solution is just upping the amount it can carry. Yeah. I mean, especially for chaos where you can take a 20 man squad of chaos space Marines and that's not a bad choice. But the problem is at the moment you have no way to use that unless you're mm-hmm. playing red, uh, red Corsairs because all right. Well, I guess you're walking, and yeah. that's not a that's not a fun proposition. No, not at all. I mean, we've we've seen again and again that you know events are not going to give you a lot of terrain to work with. Um, mm-hmm. So you're not. I don't think relying on having to have a, an amount of terrain to be even viable in every matchup is a good is a good idea. So. No. Um, aside from that, though, uh, you know. Magnus, and this might lead a little bit into maybe uh, some of the discussion over some of the new orc stuff that's coming out, because I have a feeling the meta has shifted already from LVO. Uh, It was beginning to change a bit towards the end of the season when we knew there were marine changes coming, and those marine changes finally, you know, came up, which is yet another thing we should probably talk about. Um, I have a feeling that Magnus even though what's changed between when we played that game, our last game and now is that I think Magnus is no longer going to be viable. Um, I think when you look at the weight of fire that you're going to be able to see from armies like um, Eldar who are going to be running craft or uh, reapers again, uh, Ludas I think are going to be pretty prevalent. Uh, I think that's going to push space Marines to have some heavier firepower on their um, standpoint. I kind of look at Magnus and just kind of think, you know what, he's moving back into the liability range there where, you know, he's going to be very hard to keep alive turn one. And those armies that you know you're going to run into, um, Eldar and Orcs, uh, they're going to have a, uh, like a, an ace up their sleeve against you. So what's your take? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way you've been using Magnus recently and the way that he's been sort of been viable, 
relies on a very particular style of meta. And if the meta does change back towards, I guess, longer range, heavier guns on like Dark Reapers, uh, Ludas, for instance, um, that does hurt him considerably. Now, and it also, the Devastator Doctrine, as much as figured to get nerfed, sort of, for, I, I think also... It's still fig- good. It's it's still very good. Um, and armies, I, don't, I, I need to wait and see, but I'm thinking that we'll still see armies that sort of rely on Devastator Doctrine, the idea being that, okay, well, I'm just going to front load all of my shooting first round, and then after that, we just mop up what's left. Yeah. I mean, they don't even have to wipe you out turn one. If they eliminate 25% of your army, uh, and that means that you now only have the ability to counter maybe at 10% of their army turn one, mm-hmm. that's a win for them, right? They've knocked you yeah. so back on your on your feet that there's no way for you to overcome how much you've lost immediately. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the value you kind of... You play a gambling game when you take Magnus uh, because you... There are matchups in the Marine meta where you can generally kind of know that you're either going to play him very aggressively in in the matchups where you need to go hit him, like Iron Hands, uh, or matchups where they have lots of Laz Cannons or things like that. You just, you get very aggressive with him in those matchups versus ones where you know they don't have a huge shooting threat. Like even your list, it's a very good example of you don't have a huge shooting threat against him. Um, you know, Haywire's not doing very much against him. You're really just relying on weight of fire and just lots of shots hitting him. And once he's Mm -hmm. buffed up, you know, he, you're not going to, you're just not going to get through a lot of that turn one, he's going to live and he can heal himself back up and then he gets to respond. And that's really all you need with Magnus is just him to be able to have a chance to respond, um, Mm -hmm. with the last cannons and, and very efficient high damage firepower you will not be able to respond. You you won't be able to get them in range. You won't be able to jump them. You won't be able to do anything like that because they're not options. Um, and his movement will be irked to the point where it, even moving them across the battlefield won't even be that much of an option. So um, in very similar light to that, I think Mortarian's probably going to get hit very similar, um, even, even despite the fact that he has the Death Shroud Terminators. Uh, and we saw a couple years ago uh, Justin Curtis ran Mortarian with Des- with a single squad of Death Shroud, and then he also had a Bloodthirster in his list. And what he did was, he, you know, in our conversation that we had, he talked about how he, a lot of people would focus on, um, or they would they would focus on either Mortarian or the Bloodthirster one way or another, and one of them is getting to you, you know, yeah, one way or another, one of them is getting to you. Uh, the and other I think thing... you could still, co- and just to finish that, I think you could still compose a list that does something like that today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're, again, you're getting into the original, like you almost have to put your, your Nari meta hat back on and think about how you play um, Yeah, in that meta. Yeah. The, the other thing that's interesting though, is with the changes to ITC is the fact that you no longer have to worry about still the initiative, which can allow for a little more, assurance when you're deploying it is a big change i think it's yeah. a huge huge advantage to armies that can infiltrate huge yeah, well, advantage it, it also like so for instance um when i'm playing uh before even if i'm going first i still in the back of my mind is like okay well what if they steal the initiative and so 
even I'll, I would oftentimes find myself deploying in suboptimal going first positions because there's the off chance that well that six could come up and it could really hurt. Um, but now with the ability to just oh well, I'm the attacker. I'm going first. Yeah. It allows you to deploy differently, and so the games can will go much differently. And I think where it really puts a big advantage is to armies like, I think Dark Eldar are a really good example of this. Um, and there's a guy in our Texas meta that's been running the, um, the quote-unquote Venom spam list for pretty much all of 8th edition. And I think this change moves that much more into his um, ball field because, uh, and, and, that's Nick Gower, by the way. If you want to see his list, uh, just go look up Nick Gower. Um, he's run a, a bunch of different little tweaks to it, but usually he has something like 11 or more Venoms in his yeah, list. Yeah, I hate that list. <laughs> it's annoying. But uh, in, in the maps where he can go across the battlefield real quick um, and hold objectives and play that game, um, his list works very, very effectively. It does. Uh, and um, I think his ability with minus one to hit on the Venoms, it makes it easy for him to kind of get some more survivability out of them, especially with having additional toughness. Um, you can almost hide in the beginning turn one and you can hide, you can keep your stuff hidden and basically always play to go second, more or less. Um, and, and even if you're forced to go first, you can still sit there and game plan to just play it as if, no, I'm making you make the first move. So it's almost like, you should build your army. I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, you almost build your army like Jim Vessel's original, you know, domination army from last year, where you just, you design it to go second and counter and respond to what people are doing. Um, and you just throw targets up there that are so poor that your enemy can't really do very much about it. Mm -hmm. On that topic. <laughs> <laughs> I went off a bit of a wild tangent. That's there, okay. That's okay. That's we have, right. We've had a lot to catch up on. So. We have. Uh, so the Marines obviously got the update. I think we've talked about that a little bit, but Mike, is there anything on the Marine changes that they put out there that you want to kind of delve into a little bit? Well, I mean, at this point, I th it's a little old, but there are some important bits here that deserve uh, discussion. So, the big thing is combat doctrines have gotten a big old kick to the Jimmy. Uh, what this means is that um, previously you started the devastator doctrine and you could just stay there for the entire game. Um, this opened up the certain chapters and weapon loadouts to be incredibly dominant because you just took a whole bunch of heavy weapons. They always get the bonus AP. They always get their bonuses and it made for a very boring game, I felt. Uh, but now you have to proceed with the um, sort of rotation of combat doctrines um, following the first turn. So first turn, you are Devastator. Second turn, you must move on to Tactical. So that means um, Assault and uh, Rapid Fire Weapons get their bonus AP. And then... Uh, the third, you can choose to stay tactical or you can move on to assault. Um, and then after turn four, you must be assault the rest of the game. Um, I think that sort of 
I'm sure there are some going to be some holdouts of people who try to still just play Devastator Doctrine armies, but this is designed, at least in my brain, to encourage more sort of well-rounded army builds for Marines. The main thing I sort of question, though, here is... So Primaris are the new poster boy for the game. So that's what Marines are supposed to be at the moment. So Primaris have excellent Devastator Doctrine units. They have excellent Tactical Doctrine units. But other than Reavers, I guess, what Assault units do they have that could really benefit from the Assault Doctrine? Um and so then you might see some more, I guess, classic Marines see the table just because they actually have units that can benefit from the tactical doctrine. Not tactical, so you have your doctrine. niche. I think aggressors are probably the only things that potentially slot into that, that question that you're asking. And it really is just because they haven't come out with a lot of stuff. I, well, I should back up. They have come out with a lot of stuff with Primaris. I mean, that is the new poster boy army. Like yeah, but it's been like primarily shooting based units yep very much so so um i think the obvious thing that a lot of us have talked about is the fact that raven guard are i guess the um the silly season winners here right the yeah um you know the the paper uh the paper army or the the on paper army winners or preseason winners basically of this whole thing um and i think a lot of it boils down to the fact that they're the best army that operates in tactical doctrine right now um, just simply because eliminators are just so freaking good Um, they also have such good utility in their relics uh, in their special war gear in their stratagems i mean they just have so much utility in what they do and you know mike this this got me thinking a lot after my little run with them last year or last summer um, culminating at socal where I have my best tournament finish that I've ever had at a major. Uh, I, it got me thinking, like, where where are you able to draw the line between knowing that you've improved as a player versus you're just picking up an army that's really, really strong? <laughs> so um, I actually do have a... Uh a place where you can draw that line. Uh, so there's a old meme that um, I picked up back in the Halcyon days of the TG board on 4chan. Uh, I have no called, idea what that is. Uh, don't worry about it. I'm sure some of our listeners know what that is. Um, but uh, it's still mania. It's the idea that you can pick up an army, you paint it, to whatever quality you want you seal it in like two layers of gloss one layer of matte varnish and then that is your army you do not change it you even if like this is what you've been playing for however many years if this is what you do like with some like well the additions changed or the points values changed so you have to you're forced to change the army which is acceptable and then whether you win or lose, it doesn't matter what army, the fact that you, what your army is, because this is your army. And at the end of the day, whether you can pull a victory or not, even though everyone knows what your army is and it's not necessarily meta anymore, 
that's what really sets aside like a good player from a sort of average or mediocre player. And I, I know it can be a little disparaging the way I'm coming across, but a lot of people do chase that sort of that dream. Like this is the army. And I think that it ultimately can, can potentially hurt somebody as a player uh, like the, because the, if you only ever play the good armies, you'll never have to sort of learn to think outside the box and use what you have available to you. And well, so, I, uh, I mean, it, it got me thinking because I realized in the early editions when the, when the Marine stuff was coming out, the thing that I really liked about Raven Guard when I actually sat back and looked at everything was not necessarily the overwhelming stats because um, they ultimately played to the favor of Iron Hands one way or another. But I looked at it and realized that eventually people are going to gravitate towards Raven Guard because of the utility nature of it. And, and it mm-hmm. made me appreciate much more that that style of play, having the ability to, uh, I, I guess, have a Swiss Army knife army, sounds easy to, to picture, like something that can do everything. Mm-hmm. And you can go into Battle Scribe, you can throw a bunch of stuff together and say, yeah, I can do everything. I can assault, I can... I think it's much harder to actually design an army to do that um, effectively. And I mean that from a stand toe to toe with any other army and give yourself a chance. Um, and it, and it has really made me rethink my, my approach with thousand sons where I'm not necessarily looking at, let me overwhelm you with threats. Let me make it impossible for you to really score points uh, or let me just go out and play all the other uh, all the non-interactive secondaries. What I'm really doing is just saying, okay, my army can do all of that stuff uh, depending on how I want to play it. Um, yeah. And, but I'm, what I'm realizing is that that is not the easiest thing to, um, uh, in, and even at a soup standpoint, it becomes even harder because of the complexity of the rule interactions between mm-hmm. everything. It's not an easy thing to be able to just say, you know what, I just take the best of this and the best of this and the best of this and I put it together and that'll work, right? That's the yeah. that's the answer there. And it takes way more finesse than I think I've ever given it appreciation mm-hmm. for um, up until at least this point where I'm like, I, I feel like I'm becoming a little bit more aware of that, uh, yeah. you know, in my games and even in my army design where, okay, now I have to have something that, if it needs to sit here and screen, it can do that. Or it, I can fling it at you and it's a threat. Um, much like your list, when you build them, your thought process is much more, everything, everything that's in there, I can use for a task. Like it's mm-hmm. in there for a task that it needs to go do or, or a role it needs to fulfill. And in every game, it might be asked to do one role. It might be, able, it might be asked to do another role and it might not be good at that role, but it can go do it. Yeah. So is it a matter of just looking at it and saying, how many roles can this unit play as kind of like the best way of breaking down an army? So what you're talking about is tactical flexibility, which the is a very difficult thing to achieve in any miniatures war game. Um, so oftentimes what you'll see is a tactically inflexible army but it's very, very good at whatever its role is. So, for instance, the corn. Iron Hands list or corn or yeah. um, the that classic Inari lists. Um, 
so the idea, the sort of the idea with those with a flat tactically flexible army is that you aren't supposed to aim to be the best at anything, but because these other armies are so hard to justify in one direction or the other, well, you're better. Let's say that you're fired in the corn army with a tactically flexible army. Well, now you can you shoot better than the the corn army, so you turn it into a shooting game. Well, now you're up against Tau. Your shooting is going to be worse than theirs, so let's make this a psychic or close combat game. Right. And that's, I would say, the most difficult style style of play to really master. But if you can do it, um, that is um, really uh, sort of a, the pinnacle of the hobby, as it were. The ability to pick up whatever, effectively... Uh, bring in a true all comers army and be able to hold your own with it is what I think that at the core of it, what everyone should really aspire to. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, like I said, it, it's very difficult. Um, I mean, I've been playing this game for years and even at this point, I still like, I mean, I could take the flat the flexible choice or I could just get a bigger hammer. Yeah. It's always the, the temptation there. Yeah. And it, and it looks like, you know, the, the thought process I've had is I can go pick up a corn army and I can just go play one way every single time. Right. And that mm-hmm. gets boring. Yeah. Like you might have great time on a weekend or at a tournament or, you know, every now and then as like a splash army that you just, you do it to refresh your, your joy of the game. But mm-hmm. the, the competitiveness of it, I, I think those armies, they're, they, they're one dimensional, right? You're yes. not going to have the ability to, to, face any of the the top lists and then actually carry the game deeper into the rounds so mm-hmm. i've become much more anyways i just become much more aware of that and it just made me think about the fact that thousand suns how it made me appreciate how many tools they actually have so with that um let's round out our meta conversation here and why don't we start talking about orcs because i know you're an orc player you have an orc army you like playing yes, orcs? Yes, I do like playing They've orcs. got some new previews. We might as well just have a quick chat about them. And especially from the fact that I think there's a very good chance we're going to start to see some certain concepts in orcs that will repeat themselves in a lot of armies that we might not be seeing right now. Like 45 Ludas uh, or you know other things like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, what we've seen so far has been very... Well, very impressive, I think would be the, uh, the word I'm going to use here. Um, orcs have, have already been a pretty solid army. We've seen numerous people do very well with them, not in the um, same sort of vein as what a lot of people were initially thinking they were going to be able to do, but they have been very solid. Um, but Gaskell... God bless him. I hear has, he's uh, uh, really damn gotten good right really good. Um, so he, well, he got that four up invuln safe, which is cool. But more importantly, he can only ever lose a max of four wounds in the face. So he takes the last <laughs> cannon to the face. Well, he is now immune to bullets until the phase ends. That's ridiculous. Which is That's hilarious. So ridiculous. But it is great. I like that yeah. rule. I like the creativity of it. Yeah, um, his weapons got an upgrade. Uh, now his super shooter now gets assault twelve at strength five, AP minus one. It's an assault twelve heavy bolter. Uh, Gork's claw, it's a damage four as opposed to damage three. Better AP overall, just a 
good upgrades for him. And more, most importantly, uh, his aura adds one attack to every friendly orc infantry unit within six inches. That's ridiculous. Which stacks with the wall banner, so he can get plus two attacks to everything within six inches. Does that mean you have a wall banner, which all, all orc players should have one of those? Um, just, uh, freaking bonkers how good he is now yeah or orcs are bonkers i mean they were already a very yeah. good army and now they're getting this and i yeah. laugh on one hand because it's all of this just makes total sense for orcs to get this kind of stuff but on the flip side i feel like orcs are just going to be ridiculously competitive right now with with this stuff like there's mm-hmm. so much possibility I mean, I uh, so many opportunities right. with it um, but they really revealed that there's going to be clan psychic powers. So I assume there'll also be other clan things uh, released as well. But the uh, blood axis power, which I actually I play blood axis. I think it's amazing. They're, they're cool. Um, so the the clever talk they uh, talk and they bribe and they distract people. And until the start of the next uh, psychic phase, the targeted unit cannot fire Overwatch with blood axis units from your army, and you cannot choose to fight until Suck all the axis units. Suck it, towel. And so. Yep, that is, honestly, that's amazing for orcs. Um, and then uh, the other thing, they're adding more sort of optional and so specialist rules. So specialist mobs, custom jobs. So the specialist mobs are like, um, as opposed to having a clan culture, you can instead choose to replace it with like a particular like role in the orc society. So like the example they gave is pyromaniacs, which just soups up the um, power of all of these burnas, scorches, and uh, like fire-based weapons. Yeah, it's really good. in the in the detachment. It's very good. Lets you reroll wounds, and when resolving the burna bombs, you add one to the troll. That's awesome. Uh, see the vehicles. So like the. Um, all the vehicles are getting uh, like specialized. Like you can give this thing to this particular vehicle, and now they get plus three movement. So because the uh, orchimatic pistons, for instance, for the walkers adds three to the movement, uh, and you can reroll advance rolls, which is awesome. Put them next to Gaskell, and they can uh, advance and charge. Well, that's uh, pretty useful. We've yeah. seen that with Slanesh and CSN or the. Uh, Cast Marines, they they do that quite a bit with possess and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So the stratagem that I think is gonna really make or break uh whether it works become really good though is the uh clever spanner. Cause it is a pre-battle stratagem. Mm-hmm. You use it on a unit of Ludas or Burna Boys. Um and it costs more if the unit has more than 10 models in it. But uh, it lets you roll an additional dice when determining the random number of shots that those units get, and you pick the highest. So that and this is this is basically when when I've been saying that I think the Ludas are now going to be up there. We're going to see forty five mm-hmm. of them. This is really the main thing, and I think it's really going to come out to whether they slap a one use per game uh, limit on this thing uh, in yeah. the FAQ or whether they just let this go the way it is. Uh, the the main thinking is the fact that just forty five Ludas hiding turn one popping up popping up on their turn their first movement essentially and then shooting uh you've got to re- you're you you're going to average at least two shots a piece across the board with every every single one of them and yeah. that's that's an amazing amount of shooting when you have it, it's just so many shots yeah and you can stack it with the other 
stratagem that lets you um, daka 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 on five pluses, and so it just becomes very very potent. No, you just obliterate anybody you want. Yeah. It just doesn't matter what you're shooting at; it's gone. Mm-hmm. And then my personal favorite stratagem uh, of this reveal is the flying Ed Butt. It's one CP. Uh, pick an orc flyer in your army. It explodes. That, that's so, it. So someone get, brought up a really good idea on this, Mike. They they basically said you could fly the, I think it's the Chinork or something like that, that's full of a bunch of boys <laughs> up in front of the other person's army, blow it up, make the boys get out, and then, hey, here we go, we're charging. Yeah, though I think that the Chinork is not actually a flyer, a battlefield rule. I think it's actually a transport. I'll have to double check. I that. could be wrong, but there could be a flyer that is a transport at the same time. And mm-hmm. if you blow it up and your dudes get out, then they just assault. And Hey, I've got, you know, I just have to be one inch away when my dudes emergency disembark. So. Yeah. I mean, alternatively, you could just, um, flat out a, uh, burn Obama across the table and blow up, blow it up for a D six mortal wounds to everything within six. You just, bl- you just go assassinate something. You just crash it into Aramon or something. Yep. Uh, but so that's the first release. And then we got a new thing today, which made me happy because now you can take grot mobs, which so historically grots have suffered the sort of the cultist treatment because they're not actual orcs. They don't get clan cultures. Well, now they get grot mobs. Um, so their thing is it's so Gretchen models only models in a unit with this subculture gain a six plus invuln save. And when resolving an attack by a vehicle model in a unit with this subculture, we roll hit rolls of one. So effectively what this means is they well, for one, the number of units that have the Gretchen keyword is actually remarkably large because several units have the ability to include a grot, like a, a ammo grot or a grot oiler or any number of things. Uh, so this actually applies to a surprising number of units. But um, the main thing, though, is Killicans and Mech Guns, both of which are pretty solid heavy support units, are both Grot units. And so I'm... Yeah. And we already see of, a lot of Mech Guns in, in mm-hmm. Orc lists today. Yep. They actually, the um, I had to laugh. They've been put up a brigade detachment of grots which uh, is pretty impressive it's just um, i i like i like the fact that they're letting you play the army with the different sub like sub elements of it kind of like how thousand yeah. sons are starting to evolve to be two factions like you have zangors and thousand sons right and then oh yeah we've yeah. got demons that kind of you know show up from time to time but mm-hmm. This is very much like orcs where they have orcs and, you know, Gretchen. And I guess, I guess the nice thing is they're making it so that if you're a fan of just one sub portion of your army, you can play just that portion. Yeah. And so, well, I don't think anyone's going to um, take the 384 grot list. It's actually, they well, don't I've even... heard people talking about it as a way that you could do that, and that's just a ridiculous amount of bodies and good luck shooting through it all. Yeah, I mean, it'd be pretty tough. Um, but if anyone does it, I mean, more power to you. That is would be amazing. I don't know how you'd deploy that many bodies. <laughs> well, it, it was to the point where people were actually trying to do the math this afternoon 
Um, and they were, they were literally saying, okay, I guess the worst, the worst smallest confined space that you could have would potentially be the search and destroy one where you just mm -hmm. have that one little quarter. Um, and I think in that case, you probably are, are relegated to having to figure something out. Yeah. Maybe put some of them in reserve using te yeah. teleporter strike or something. But I mean, the, the takeaway here is based off everything I'm seeing, I'm thinking that the orc release is going to be about as good as some of the more powerful psychic awakening releases. Yeah. Um, because everything I've seen here has been absolutely stellar in regards to what it brings to the orc army. Um, though technically there's another release. Um, unfortunately that comes along with the orcs and the saga of the beast. They who shall remain unnamed, right? Yeah. The space corgis are also getting an update. Yes. Um, but uh, the main thing actually, I was looking at those. So Ragnar Blackmane, the, the special character who got primarized after a really bad running with Gazgul. <laughs> is... I absolutely love the fact that he just got <laughs> spanked by Gazgul. I mean, that's the thing. Like he cut off his head. It's like, ha ha, I won. It's like truly my superiority. This Gazgul just like Hulk ragdolled him back. It's like killed the shit out of him. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> yeah. But um, Ragnar Blackman is absolutely bonkers now. Um, on the charge, this sucker gets... 10 attacks and then he combines with like the combat doctrine so every time he rolls a 6 he gets an extra additional hit or he can take um, touch of the wild so on a 4 plus he scores an additional hit that is effectively 15 attacks That's with a nice. relic frost sword thing so it's probably yeah. going to deal like three damage at AP minus three and like kill everything. Well, I have to ask, what's his delivery mechanism? I mean, he's a Primaris Marine now, so an Impulsor or a Repulsor would be the two options he has available. He doesn't have any... Well, I guess, have we seen his full uh, data sheet we, yet? I haven't seen his full data sheet just yet. I think I saw a, like a preview of it. There's a leak around somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering what his keywords are and whether he can actually go into the, you know, into it or not, whether it gives so him... So he, he is a Primaris Marine, so he has all those same limitations, so he can't get in traditional Space Marine vehicles. Right, but infantry or there's some stuff that, that I think takes two slots rather than one, just depending on what yeah. armor he has, or what they, what they count him as being. So. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, based off what I'm seeing but, here, he's probably just going to be wearing regular Primaris armor. And that's fair. And even if that's the case, though, even an Impulsor or something like that isn't any better than something like a Rhino, other than the fact yeah. that it can fly. So you mm -hmm. still, my question is still, what's your delivery mechanism other than a transport? Because as we were talking about before, and the thing that people don't do, 20, 25 Zangors could kill uh, Ragnar by simply cycle of slaughtering with veterans of long war and killing a killing an impulsor that he's in and he just never gets to spawn onto the table. This is very true. Um, otherwise I, I think he has a lot of the um, problems that most primaris characters have. They have no safe way to get them across the table. Yeah. Unless they like they, they're sneaky or something. And I could see space Marine or uh, space wolf players trying to use the, uh, the, the wolf, the wolf uh, uh, buggy or whatever the thing is, the um, the boat 
the flying boat that they have. Oh yeah, yeah. You can't so actually I can, get inside that. Funnily enough. Yeah, so I I can see them trying to use stuff like that to get them across the board. Yeah, whatever. Yep. I mean, just screen them out with Zangors and you know have fun using your one CP Death of the False Emperor on four stratagem against them and good night. Yeah. So um, otherwise, uh, they get a new a litany for their wolf priests. They add one to damage against monsters and vehicles. Um, they get new relics, which I don't know. They, I found the their relic power axe to be kind of underwhelming, mostly because it's a relic that gets bonus damage against monsters or vehicles, but you're only strength five, so who cares? Take a power fist. Um, and then the rune priests. Actually, this relic is really good, and I kind of wish Thousand Suns had something like it. Um, so a rune priest only, uh, after resolving the first psychic power for the bearer and the psychic phase, roll a d6 for each enemy unit within 12 inches of the bearer. On a 4 plus, that enemy unit suffers a mortal wound. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not a ton, but I mean, it spl- splash damage, um, especially if like yeah. they tell they did deep strike in a um, Terminator rune priest. And just okay, well, uh, there we go. <laughs> That's all the wounds for everyone. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's very much like the Thousand Suns with the magic sorcerer. Right? Yeah. Um, otherwise, though, I, I, I don't know. As much as we're obligated to hate Space Wolves, I think that it's a good release for them. I want to um, see it just be a good match between the two armies. That's all. And I feel like yeah. the stuff that they've given, I like them having a beat stick like Ragnar. I, yeah. I like it, it as much as it. We have Magnus. And I know that um, I want to see matches that Thousand Suns and Space Wolves can have very close matches where there's very good counters to each other's weaknesses um, and just knowing how to use them. But very much to our utility discussion that we had earlier, um, just being able to understand what, what tools you have to work with and having all those tools and what the, what the advantage that is that it gives you against Space Wolves and how to take advantage of their weaknesses. Um, like, Thunderwolf Cat, for example, you take away their invuln save, and all of a sudden they start crippling. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, but I think that's it for new releases for 40k. But there is one other thing. The greatest it's of things. It's about Magnus. Isn't it, it is. Magnus is mad. He, he is. is, in fact, furious. <laughs> in the new book coming out, uh, Fury and Magnus. Uh, this kind of flew under the radar for a lot of folks, actually. Um, and I, I didn't even notice it until like at least a couple of weeks after it had already been rele- uh, announced. And uh, so I was kind of sitting there surprised the other day that I, I saw it, you know, up on the Warhammer community site. Uh, and that sure enough, they're, they're writing basically the section of the timeline for the Thousand Suns that we've all been kind of wanting explained and that is what happens with them during the siege of terror are they there are they not there what are they doing um there are some uh there's a teaser at least that they post that kind of hints at the fact that you know magnus and dad are going to have to have some kind of chat in this book uh that's what they really heavily allude to um like some kind of conflict between the two um but uh they they obviously are talking about what the Thousand Sons are doing during the siege, and it sounds like they're not really involved in the big battle, um, where the Iron Warriors are pretty much 
you know, sieging, laying siege to the, to the palace, uh, these guys are off trying to save Magnus. And so I think um, from what it sounds like, it's going to be very important to get yourself up to speed and read Crimson King um, and go through and find, uh, you know, find out what happened right after the fall of, uh, you know, Prospero. Um, whereas with Thousand Sons and the burning of Prospero, that tells you the story from two different angles of what actually happened there. Uh, but Crimson King kind of picks up right after the battle. Uh, we then go through a whole lot of stuff uh, happening during the march towards Terra, but then we have the siege of Terra. So um, it seems like they're kind of filling in some of the missing questions that we had on all the all the fluff here. And I, I know I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Bitch. More Thousand Stun stuff is always appreciated. I love seeing that there's more fluff coming out or more books coming out for Thousand Sons. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, especially when you know it's a Graham McNeil book, and his books have always <laughs> been very good. So, yeah. Well, with that, um, obviously we know that the um, the main plot line with that book, Mike, I believe, is going to be that Magnus did nothing wrong, right? I mean, everyone already obviously knows that Magnus did nothing wrong. Hey, everybody knows it. It's a known fact. We just, yeah, we we just talked to Congress to the other day, it. and they just passed a bill that said Magnus did nothing wrong. So it's 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 in law now. It's written. There's no objection yes. to it. So. It is known. Anyways, guys, stay healthy. Hope you guys uh, enjoy your time uh, in the uh, quarantine or whatever, wherever <laughs> we are in the rest of the world here. We'll do our best to get another podcast to you guys as soon as possible. Yep.